for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. First Corinthians 6 begins. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you not incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord, and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ, and make them members of a prostitute? Never! Or do you not know... That he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? Whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. May God bless the reading. The hearing. The understanding. The preaching. And the obeying of his word today. I confess to you. This is the heaviest of heavy weights. In texts for sermons. But it's important for us. And so I pray that the gravity with which my heart brings today's message is received with the gravity of faithfulness in faith that God wants us to live out His message today. We are in a series entitled United. And in this series, we are talking about how the gospel of Jesus Christ unites us together in Him in what He has done for us in salvation. And in this series, we're really laboring for one thing, and that's this, to live as a people who are united in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we've said this each week, that unity fuels God's people for kingdom mission in the world. It fuels God's people for kingdom mission 
in the world. And, and we've talked about how uh, uh, the, the cross is, is that central unifying understanding as the work of Christ to make us Christians and to bring us together. And the Spirit is in the inhabiting presence of God within us that is bringing the full wisdom of the cross to life within us that we might apply it out. And now as we move forward through the book of 1 Corinthians, every situation and every circumstance that Paul confronts going on in the Corinthian church will be one at which we must apply the cross by the wisdom of the Spirit to understand how we are to walk obediently by faith with Jesus and what Paul's doing in 1 Corinthians 6 is he is addressing a specific situation that was taking place in the Corinthian church you think up the most horrid situations that Christians could get themselves into that are even worse than non-Christians and I tell you it was modus operandi in the Corinthian church if you ever want to feel good about yourself being a Christian just go well at least I wasn't a Corinthian it won't work, but at least it will be true. <laughs> I mean, there really are no churches that could do worse than the Corinthian church and the reality of what was taking place and what we see throughout the book of Corinthians. Here's what's taking place in 1 Corinthians 6, the first eight verses. Paul is addressing a situation in the church where one believer has taken another believer to court. And, and we don't know a lot about the situation, but here's what we do know. They most likely were wealthy individuals in the church because the vast majority of people in the church in the first century didn't have enough possessions to matter over. And if they did and it was stolen from them, they didn't have the money to get in front of a judge. So just the very way that Paul tells the story helps us to understand that it was most likely the wealthy in the church. And by his description, it was some kind of disagreement over personal property of some way. But what we understand is that the disagreement between the two Christian members of the church was causing a disturbance and a disruption and a division within the whole church. And surely even within the church's witness in the world because, because it was causing a division in their commitment to one another. And this is where I want us to begin today. And surely we will continue throughout this chapter as we see how it is that divisions, and shall we say not only in the congregation, but even in the individual life of a Christian, are brought to bear upon the cross, and how the cross is brought to bear upon them to bring unity and purity in the Christian's life and in the church or the Christian congregation. That's what I want you to walk away with today is simply this idea that Christians live in unity of fellowship and purity of life for God's eternal glory because of the salvation in Jesus Christians live in unity of fellowship in the congregation, the church, and purity of life for God's eternal glory because of salvation in Jesus. Paul says more through the questions that he asks in the first four verses of chapter 6 than he could say if he were just making statements, right? You, you've had people pose these to you in that way where they ask one question and about ten truths settle in on your mind. Right? And that's what Paul begins to do. With the first question, you can tell Paul strongly disagrees with the situation that's taking place in the Corinthian church. And the Christians were going before the unrighteous in the civil courts instead of to the church to solve matters of disagreement and division among individuals in the church. Friends, listen, I, I know this is so foreign to our way of thinking in the church today that our first response is, what's the big deal? I mean, that's why Judge Judy's there, right? Now let me say this, Paul's not degrading the civil courts. This is not a treatise against law and order from government. This is a confrontation 
on a congregation that claims the name of Christ but lives in denial of what he has accomplished for them. And he states this. He says, Corinthians, the Christians will judge the world and and will even judge angels. Are we not qualified to be able to judge more trivial personal matters between two of you? But every time Christians take personal matters before civil courts, they act as though there's no one qualified to settle the dispute between brothers or sisters in the church. And no matter who wins in a situation like that, the church always loses when Christians file lawsuit to settle personal matters against one another. Paul states that Christians should be ready to suffer wrong, even be defrauded in order to avoid this type of division and disunity in the church. Listen, friends, I need to make this clear. I'm not talking about in the world at large. That's a different application and another sermon. I'm talking about the people sitting to your right and to your left and in front of you and behind you and that will fill this room at the next hour and the people that we claim that we're living in spiritual community with and yet we allow even the most trivial of our personal matters to divide us Paul says Christians should be ready to suffer wrong even to be defrauded in order to avoid this type of division and disunity and ultimately the testimony that it speaks to the world but he says this instead of risking being defrauded you took a preemptive strike and you defrauded one another you didn't want to be the one to have to respond to it so you're the one that enacted the defrauding in the first place and instead of entrusting yourself to the lordship of Jesus through his church and to the brothers and sisters in Christ you take matters into your own hand And place it before the world to be judged. You see, they prefer that the church bear a testimony of division and disunity in the world rather than having to be personally defrauded in any way. Hear me, friends. This applies to to each of us more deeply than we care to admit in the smallest of ways and interpersonal relationships in the church but even in larger ways I would say to you today I've watched Christian brothers get defrauded and wronged and stolen from by others who claim the name of Christ and the struggle was real and the loss was significant but when they chose not to pursue litigation Out of obedience to Christ, the blessing was not insignificant or insufficient for the obedience that was offered by faith in Christ. Yes, yes, Jesus is as real in the most material and tactile of situations of our life as He is in the eternal and the spiritual situations of our life. We can't always measure outcomes in this life, but we can know this, that God always honors the person that chooses to trust their life into His hands. Paul's sharpest rebuke is that the Corinthians' actions demonstrated a lack of understanding of their new identity in Christ. They couldn't uh, bear the thought of being defrauded, nor the thought of entrusting their lives to some other Christian because they relegated Christ's sacrifice. Their success, their winning was of greater glory than Christ's sacrifice. And, And what must we really be saying to the world about God and whether He can really defeat sin and death when He can't even settle little disputes among His own children that are really insignificant and incomparable in terms of eternal matters? That's what Paul's saying. That's that's the argument that he is making. And when the church, when, when Christians hand off matters to the world, the gospel gets bypassed because the world doesn't believe it, let alone trust that Jesus in some way could do something about it. And so it doesn't get applied to what is taking place among the church. And the church's witness suffers When Christians live divided because each individual matters more than the whole 
in that division. But you see, salvation, friends, in Jesus Christ means that the gospel applies to all of life. What good is eternal life if the salvation that Christ has given to us makes no difference in the here and now? What good is it? Are we just on hold until the day when he returns or the day in which we die? I would offer to you, in fact, no, we're not. We're not on hold. That eternal life begins here and now and lasts for all eternity. Jesus says, I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. When we choose personal victory, safety, comfort, revenge, we deny that his sacrifice was sufficient and we demand that others suffer instead of us and that we are worthy to avoid all suffering and receive Jesus' glory. You see, the gospel leads Christians to value and to guard the church's witness in the world through unity among brothers and sisters more than personal benefit. If you're not in the throes of something today, that'll be a little easier for your palate to accept. If you're in the midst of a division with a fellow brother or sister in Christ, that will be a little harder for you to swallow. But I will promise you Christ will be faithful as you follow him. And so the question comes, this sounds so good in theory, Pastor, but how is it that one does this? And this is exactly where Paul goes in verses 9, 10, and 11. He appeals to our righteous inheritance as our greatest blessing that is of worth and value to us even now. And, and he provides a list to remind many of their formal our former way of living, the, the emptiness that it proved to them, and, and that none who continued in those lifestyles would inherit the kingdom of God. That's what he says in verses 9 and 10. And here's what he includes. Sexual immorality, idolaters, adulterers, those who actively practice homosexuality, thieves, greedy, drunkards, revilers, swindlers. And listen, we can look at this list and go, yeah, and dismiss it and take it lightly. But we should not dismiss this list lightly, nor should we dismiss the severe warning that Paul is giving for anyone who continues in the practice of these lifestyles. He simply says this, people who remain in a continual active practice of sinful lifestyles do not inherit the kingdom of God. Let me meddle with American Christianity for a moment. I don't care when you walked an aisle and made a personal decision for your life if it doesn't matter today in your life to make Jesus Lord of all. What he did to save you is not in some way a precursor to someday later on be your Lord and Master. He is your Master today or he was never your Savior in the past. That's what we're laboring for today. This righteous inheritance that we have in Christ. Salvation in Jesus either makes a change in this life or it makes no difference whatsoever for your life. And here's what he says. You ready? And such were some of you were here it goes here's my english lesson for today were is a past tense verbal form i know earth shattering right but think about the implications of this it is no longer a present tense reality for you And all I can think when I read that five-word phrase is this, yep, I were. I mean, that's, that's what Paul wants us to see. This is the righteous inheritance of the saints, is that we are no longer what we were, but we are what we one day shall be. And that is the reality of Christian identity for you and I today, and it is the truth upon which Paul anchors his 
argument. The second word that he says is also a past moment where everything changed because of Jesus. You see, Paul's not describing how salvation works, but its effect and what we are because of Jesus. He's helping us to understand the effect of salvation in Jesus on our lives. And he says this, and such were some of you, and here's the second were, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, but, here's my second English lesson for today, but is a conjunction. I learned that from cartoons as a child. Not in English class. It is a conjunction that changes with immediacy the outcome of what preceded it and what, with what follows it. Your sinful life is no more because of Jesus. And what is to be is now because of the same. And it is these two realities that you and I must take hold of one to deny and the other to pursue. Christian, you are not what you were because of Jesus, because of who he is and because of what he's done. But now because of Jesus, you are who you are becoming and one day will perfectly be. There is a song that uh, I enjoy in one of my playlists. It's called We Will Remember. It talks about the story of salvation. In the third verse, the third verse says this. I still remember the day you saved me. The day I heard you call out my name. You said you loved me, would never leave me. And I have never been the same. That's what Paul is saying. You are not what you were because of Jesus. But you are what you forevermore will one day perfectly be. And that matters here and now for you and for me and for us. We must stop thinking of people the way they were before Jesus and see them because of what Jesus has done for them. And in order to do this, we've got to stop thinking of ourselves the way we were before Jesus and start seeing ourselves because of what Jesus has done for us. You see, we steal Jesus' glory when we think of other people without him and when we don't consider him in our own lives and calculate his salvation upon our lives. For Jesus is the new defining reality for the Christian in every aspect of life and in the church, Jesus. That's the definition of who we are. Everything Paul is talking about in chapter 6 swings on verse 11. The unity of the church is anchored in the work of Jesus on the cross. And trusting the gospel for congregational unity poses a great challenge to us as the church, just as trusting the gospel for personal purity does for each Christian. And that's immediately where Paul moves. He moves from addressing the congregation now to addressing each individual Christian. And he does this by using one of their own mantras. It's a liberty or a Christian liberty mantra. But he conditions the factual truths of their liberty with a wise application. What does he say in verse 12? He begins, all things are lawful for me. That's a quote of their own mantra that they were using. And they stated it with theological precision. But theological precision is not always absolute in application. You see, an eternal perspective equips Christians to live with wise discernment above absolute Liberty. There are two additional wisdom layers that Paul lays over this Christian liberty that is factually true. 
but not always absolute in application. And the first thing he says is all things are lawful, but they should also be helpful. You see, helpful is more than just a personal sense of preference, but in the purposeful sense of one's Christian witness to the world. That's how our liberties should be applied. Yes, I am free in Christ, but is this activity in my life helpful for my life in Christ to bear a faithful witness? And the second layer he gets, or he says, is this all things are lawful for me, in other words, allowable. But I'll not be dominated by anything. This one can become very difficult. No matter how good something may be, nothing should control the Christian's life other than Jesus Christ. Nothing, friends, for Christians live wisely when freedoms are prioritized to serve Jesus' kingdom and not just personal agendas. And what he does is he draws a distinction between secondary or non-essential matters and essential matters that relate to Christian identity. For food and eating are important, but they are not equal to sexuality and identity. Sexual immorality was so common in that day that the Corinthians equated sexual immorality with the same practice as eating. And it said it doesn't really matter. Listen to this. Corinthians were so skewed and perverted in their understanding of sexuality. This is actually a mantra of the culture in Corinth. Prostitutes for pleasure, slaves for personal maintenance, wives for bearing children. Yeah, you try that at home, that's not going to fly, man. Why? Because that bird just doesn't fly. Christians go awry in faithfulness when we make too much of secondary matters and too little of essential matters. And Paul confronts this by distinguishing that eating is for the body, but the body is for the Lord, not for sexual immorality. You see, sexual immorality applies here as a broad reference to all sexual activity outside of the covenant relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. And he established his argument on two points. First of all, because of the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, sexual immorality is wrong. You see, the body's purpose is for the Lord, and it will be raised just as Christ was raised, because we as Christians are members of Christ. And he also anchors it in the creational command that in sexual intercourse, two actually become one flesh. You see, what occurs in eating is for here and now. And it can honor God and it can also dishonor God. But what occurs in sexual intercourse lasts within that person for their life. Eating food may or may not betray faithfulness depending on whether someone allows food to control them or not. But sexual intercourse joins one with another as one flesh with every occurrence. Christians are one with Christ. Not just in the flesh, but in the flesh through the Spirit. And so flesh, the mortal, serves the Spirit, which is immortal, either to build or to destroy that life. And one flesh, by sexual immorality, denies and betrays the defining Spirit of Christ that is in us. Now hear me, we'll talk about this more later, but the resurrection will change some aspects of the body, like the effect that food actually has on the body, but it will not change anything that is now true about our Christian identity. And so sexual immorality always betrays Christian faithfulness because it forsakes and denies our identity in Jesus. Paul tells the Corinthians to stop sexual immorality because it opposes faithful obedience to God. You see, in Christ, we are one with God through Jesus. We are one with Jesus by the Holy Spirit, and we are one with God's people as a member of Christ. And so sexual immorality makes us one with a prostitute, and this is incompatible with Christian ethics. And it means that the person is not only one with that prostitute, but has become dominated by that prostitute because they no longer exercise control over their life. 
But Christians, friends, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And how we treat and live in our body demonstrates how it is that we hallow Christ with our life. And Christians live in the body in such a way that is true to what Christ has accomplished for us in the Spirit. And the Spirit rules the flesh. And so purity in life is our defining Christian ethic because it demonstrates Christ's righteousness that is put on us in salvation. Let me remind you where it is that we are aiming once again today. Christians live in unity of fellowship and purity of life for God's eternal glory. Why? Because of salvation in Jesus. I told you verse 11 is the hinge upon which all of chapter 6 swings. And such were some of you. But you were. Aren't you glad for the second past tense verbal form? (laughs) That Christ has made That we don't live in the shadow of the condemnation of our past, but now we live in the light of the glory of the future hope of Christ. And it is as true of us now as it will ever be in eternity. Everything that we will be one day in heaven with Jesus is true of you right now, Christian. Right now, you will never be more saved in Jesus Christ than you are today by faith in what he's accomplished on the cross and the reality of the Spirit of God filling and living, inhabiting us. And this life is all about living out what Jesus put on and what he has put in us. So how do we live faithful to our salvation? I'm glad you asked. I want to cover this in the remainder of our time. For Paul teaches the Corinthians and he teaches Christians today how it is that we live in light of the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the cross means we are not what we once were, but we are what we will one day be. Maybe that should have been my big idea for today. We live in the unity of the fellowship of this church and the purity of our life because of this truth that we are not what we were in Jesus, but because of him, we are what we will one day perfectly be. Changes everything. The cross does for the person who hears and believes. And gospel transformation occurs as we live this cross-forged understanding of life. Now, let me just give you a little bit of insight to an analogy and an illustration that I just love to use. Because here in a moment, I'm going to conclude the sermon with four principles quickly applied to help you live in unity of fellowship and the purity of life. But I call it a cross-forged application because it needs to be pressed through the saving atoning work of Jesus Christ if the reality of our hearts and of our minds and of our spirits and of our souls is to be shaped like Jesus what happens in the forging of something two elements are necessary upon the material heat and hammering right apply the heat soften the material and hammered into the shape that it needs to be in. That's good parenting advice too, by the way. I learned that watching the knife makers at Silver Dollar City. I thought, that's, I love that, you know. And so Kristen said, come on, we're leaving the knife shop. I went, no, I'm studying for a sermon right now. I'm shameless. Heat and hammering. You see, the heat of, of Christianity and the hammering of Christianity comes for us through the hardship And the humility of life. Hardship in our life is anything that is produced by the expression of our sinful nature. By our sinful activity or by a sinful influence upon us that tempts us to forsake and to deny Jesus. And see, the biggest things that you're thinking of right now are probably not the most numerous things that cause you to deny and tempt you to forsake Christ. You're thinking, man, I've never gone and picked up a prostitute. I'm good today. No, but Jesus says, if you've looked at a woman, men, and you've committed adultery with her in your heart, you're guilty. You're guilty. You see, our biggest problem 
with living a cross-forged life is that we dismiss all the little things that we think we're supposed to take care of and just want to offer the big ticket items up to Jesus. And what he's saying is everything comes to the foot of the cross. Everything. The heat of life, the hardships. It might be just the stress of a conversation or a moment that tempts you to believe in this moment, I need to check out, I need to grow angry, I need to be inconsolable, I need to go on a shopping spree, get my mind off things, I need to whatever it might be. But instead of applying a humility to trust in Jesus, you're going to run away and forsake Him to run after whatever it is that you think will bring you satisfaction or pleasure. And surely that's true in the big temptations of life as well. And in the midst of that hardship or that heat, the hammering comes upon us as we humble ourselves to the will and to the way and to the work of God. And He begins to shape us into what Ephesians 2.10 says is a beautiful workmanship. Where we trust and obey His will and His way to live and to love instead of just pursuing our own. So what I want to talk to you today in the final few moments about a cross-forged life is talking about the hardships of life no matter how small or how hard they may come against you. Responding to them in humility so you can trust in Jesus to walk in obedience. The first principle for you today is this, that unity and purity are first priorities for Christians as a living testimony to salvation in Jesus. Everything goes back to verse 11, friends. Everything goes back to verse 11. I am not what I were, but by God's grace and through the cross of Jesus Christ, I am what I will one day perfectly be. Unity is to God's people what purity is to each individual Christian. Jesus died to purchase your salvation and put his righteousness on you. Jesus ransomed people for God by his blood from every tribe, language, people, and nation and made them a kingdom and priest to God. Listen, unity and purity are not something we produce. It's something we enjoy because of Jesus and something we live out of when we follow Jesus by faith. Both are determined by the gospel and both bear a faithful testimony of God's glory through Jesus Christ among his people to the world. You see, salvation in Jesus leads every Christian to live all of life in distinctive obedience through unity and purity. But unity and purity are much more than just an ethic or a morality of outward action. They're true of the church before it's ever produced by the church. Purity is true of Christians before it's ever lived out by that Christian. Why? Because it is Christ and it is placed upon us by Him. These are defining truths of redeemed identity in Jesus Christ that determines a new ethic, that determines a new morality from which Christians live. And when Jesus is not your defining motivation and Holy Spirit is not your defining source of strength for living, God will never be your all-consuming object of glory. In other words, you won't have to worry about who gets the glory. You'll be able to take it all for yourself. The Christian priority to live in purity of life and unity with the church, both source from the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you live in, when you practice immorality or you live in disunity with the church, you bear a false testimony about Jesus. You're not your own in salvation, Paul says. You're not dominated by a prostitute. You're not dominated by a controlling practice. You're not dominated by a controlling substance. You're not dominated by a controlling philosophy of life. You're not dominated by some ideology of personal pleasure or satisfaction. You're not dominated by anything other than Jesus. He is your Lord and He is your Master. He purchased you with His blood. You have no right to forsake Him in your body. You are a member of his body and you live in unity with his people 
Purity in life and unity in the church are a faithful testimony of being saved by Jesus. And and we follow Jesus in purity and unity as an expression of our blood-bought, Jesus-saved, Christ-redeemed, cross-forged, spirit-filled, God-glorifying life. The second principle, and I know I'm moving quick. I need to move quicker. Christian liberties are never a license to sin and should always be ready to be sacrificed for kingdom mission. No man was more free than Jesus. Therefore, no man gave up more liberties than he did when he willingly laid down his life for his enemies. Christians trust Jesus' sacrifice, and they model his obedience when we lay down our rights and liberties to serve God's eternal Purposes. Let me give you three quick questions to pose in order to apply this sacrificial uh, work uh, of Jesus' cross becoming real to us. So when you come up to a situation, to an activity, or to an opportunity in life, filter with these three questions. First of all, what does God's word teach on the subject? Does it allow it or forbid it? What does God's word teach on the subject? Does it allow this or does it forbid it? Or does it have some application that may not be direct, but is indirect to it? The second question you should ask yourself is, will this activity prove helpful for my obedience to Christ? Obviously, if God's word forbids something, you can stop there. And you do that by faith. If God's word allows it, you should ask another question. Will this be helpful for my witness, both my relationship with Christ both in my encouragement of others' relationship with Christ and also to demonstrate to all people in the world that I am a follower of Christ. Will it be helpful? And number number three, will this activity dominate, control, or impair my life in any way? If you'll use those three questions, you'll be able to make a faithful application, being honest with yourself from God's Word. And now in an increasingly sexualized culture, we need to be reminded of this third principle. And it's simply this, that sexual immorality is something to flee from and never to flirt with. Sexual immorality is something to flee from and never to flirt with. You know what God tells us every single time in the Bible regarding any form of sexual immorality? Run. Run. When you sin sexually, friends, hear me. This is what Paul is telling us. You destroy yourself by deceiving your inner being about your true identity. You see, sexual sin is not in some way a worse sin than any other as we measure them in human categories. That's not what Paul is saying. Rather, rather, in relation to the body, it is unique, and as such, it affects the body in unique ways. You see, all sin deceives. It deceives us about God. It deceives us about the world. It deceives us about ourselves. It deceives us about other people. It deceives us about how we relate to the world, and on and on it goes. But sexual immorality compounds that deception and the condemnation by confusing a person about themselves at the deepest level level of personal understanding and identity. You see, sexual activity is a direct connect to and a direct outlet of the human soul. And when your body engages in sexual activity, you give expression and you grant access to your soul. Sexual immorality hastens mental decay as it confuses a person about identity and who am I and purpose. Why is it that I exist? Sexual immorality is always damaging and condemning in its endeavor when not practiced under the covenant of marriage. That's why God gave us guardrails. He gave us boundaries for sexuality and boundaries for sexual activity because within those boundaries, it is a blessing unmatched on this earth. Outside of those boundaries, it is a condemnation, a confusion, a, a diversion, a division, and every means of deception of you at the deepest levels of your understanding. 
But friends, listen, Christian, you're not bound and you're not dominated by sexual desires because we are bought with a price and ruled by Christ. Sexual sin confronts the most basic truth for a Christian, that you are Jesus's and none other. And the only sufficient truth to adequately and sufficiently confront sexual temptation in every measure is our true identity in Jesus Christ. That's why I'm telling you, you are not what you were. But praise be to God because of Jesus, you are what you will one day perfectly be. I hope you're holding to those. Union with Jesus Christ, hear me, is greater than sexual temptations that threaten with pleasured freedom and with hopeful promise. You see, sexual immorality is not limited to only the physical. Lest you think you've avoided sexual immorality because it's not involved a physical adultery or fornication with another person, let me offer this strong warning. Sexual immorality that joins you with another person in mind or emotion, as the pornography industry has so perfected in our day-to-day, equally betrays the Christian spirit of oneness with Christ. Studies even show us today that pornography actually reprograms the mind of the one who sits under its domination, its mastery. And the mind of Christ is central to the Christian life. You cannot be joined to Christ in spirit and surrender your mind to be dominated by another master. So Christians flee sexual immorality. Run from it. Mercilessly and ruthlessly kill it. Go to Colossians chapter 3 and Paul will show you where those sins of sexual immorality should have no mercy granted in your life. There is no room for coddling it. Any measure of life of your heart real estate that you give it, it will dominate you every time. It will confuse you about who you are. It will deceive you about why you're here and it will lead you to the only place it can take you. Death, it'll bury you deeper than you could ever imagine. We Christians are the church. We're Christ's people. Each one his child. And so we celebrate purity as we live it out by faith. But hear me, hear me, hear me. Please hear me. Neither Christians nor the church ever shun those who were caught in sexual sin. Ever. It's not ours to do. It is ours to apply the gospel. Jesus is our sufficient Savior who rescues and redeems even from sexual immorality. The very situation that 1 Corinthians 5 was written to about a Christian within the church who was hardened in his sexual immorality. The gospel gives us a path to relationally address it. And of course, those outside the church, what does Paul say? They already live under the judgment of God if they're not a Christian. We don't need to judge them. All we need to do is share the gospel with them. The fourth principle, and it's fast. Christians live with one defining focus. The glory of God in all things that we do in life. God is the unifying glory for our lives in purity and in unity. Christians live with an eternal perspective on all of life that directs our hearts to value everything, everything in light of the cross. All right. I'm going to ask the worship team to return. Where are you today, friend? Where is your heart? Are you in unity in the church? Are you living in purity because of Christ in your life? Hear me, I have no qualms about a message like this to think that in any way it will not be received more heavily than much other content. Why? Because it is so close a reality for each of us, either in our life or directly with someone that we know closely. And the point I want to make today is this, that you would beckon upon the cross 
to trust Christ and to follow Him, to trust in what He's done for you on the cross, and to follow Him by faith. Listen, some of you are here today and you are Christians. And and you may be at a point in your life where where you have fallen prey to the temptations of sexual desire in your life. You've fallen prey to the temptation of division in the church. And I want you to know that the cross of Christ is sufficient to fully cleanse and forgive from both of those. One is not less than the other, though both will affect you differently in your heart and in your life. The invitation for you today is to simply say this. It's to come to Jesus and to repent, to call that sin by name and to lay it at the foot of the cross. And to say, God, I'll not be buried by this sin in death. I'll bury it at the cross. Will you do that today? Unfaithfulness in marriage. Unfaithfulness in the heart. Indiscretions that have just been allowed to linger. And, and, and you've become, you've gotten to a point you don't even know how to turn around. You're not sure where to go. i tell you, there's only one place to go. It's to do a complete 180 from that sin and run. Run like heaven back to Jesus you're here today you've never come to a point in your life where you've put your faith in Christ and received the salvation that only he can give I want you to know the dissatisfaction the condemnation that all of that sin heaps upon you will be washed whiter than snow by the blood of Jesus Christ would you receive him today would you receive him and trust him let me pray and then let's respond. Jesus, would you help us today to look to you instead of all the excuses and reasons that we will offer not to? To believe in you instead of all the lies and deceptions that the world and that our own pleasures and our own heart will try to sell to us in this time? To look to you as the only one who can sufficiently conquer this condemnation that is mastering us and to recognize that in you the life that you give to us is greater than any we could imagine or achieve and we will walk with you by faith as we trust in you.